Uh, I want to just talk a little bit about the, just some of the background behind the Christmas story. There's a celestial drama that we need to take a peek at. You know, the example of Herod, okay. Uh, great job though, man. I mean, I, 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 for a second there, I thought you were the Antichrist. It was <laughs> amazing. Um, you know, Herod, who he demands to be before God and man, it just doesn't square with who God is. Uh, and what he doesn't recognize is he's a pawn in a celestial drama and so, Can I just pray for us for a moment and then let's examine the word of God together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and and Lord, we wanna see who you are, the desire of your heart as a father and the way that you've made for us through Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for Rosie, for Eric, for the choir, for the worship team, uh, everyone that put in so much work to do such a marvelous job proclaiming Jesus is king. Uh, Lord, thank you for who you are. Bless us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you're gonna get the magnitude of this celestial drama, the first thing that you have to understand in PowerPoint, you're gonna have to keep up with me because we're gonna fly here. Uh, God is a father. He is a father, literally. His name is Father. One of the names of the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter nine and verse six. Uh, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's the Christmas part of that verse. That's the first advent. And then in in describing the second advent, it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. And here is another name for our God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 63, 16, his name is O Lord. O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. Thou, O Lord, art our Father. In Luke chapter 11, when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, uh, he doesn't instruct them to call him mighty God, it would be appropriate, but in instructing them to pray, he tells them to call God our Father, which art in heaven. And so God is a father, God is infinite, he's infinite in his capacity, and so, so think about this for a moment. God has a massive family. Uh, he has a massive family, and that's just logical. I mean, an infinite God should have a, a very great family because he's infinite in his capacity to know and to love. Of course he wants a very large family. And in the beginning, you read about original creation in Genesis 1.1. If you're with us on Sunday mornings, you know uh, in our Genesis study, we saw original creation and, and the family that exists in Genesis 1-1 is the celestial host only. We saw in Job chapter one, Job chapter two, Job chapter 38, talking about the sons of God, the stars of heaven. It's the celestial host that makes up God's family in Genesis 1-1. The angels shouted for joy, right? They cried out in worship and praise to God over his creation. In the word of God, you get glimpses of them and we find out they're a very large family. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22, they're called an innumerable company of angels. How many angels is that? Well, it's so many, you can't count them. It's innumerable, it's a very big family, these sons of God. In Revelation chapter five and verse 11, the Bible gives the number of those who are in God's family. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. It's a big family, millions, billions. It's a very big family. 
But there was a failure in this family because the one who was in charge, the anointed cherub, Lucifer, uh, he got a Herod complex, he got a Herod problem. And so you, you need to understand this, in God's family, it's his family that manages his affairs. God's affairs he entrusts to his family. And we'll see this in a moment with Adam. So the first guy in charge, the first family member under God is Lucifer. He is a chief steward. And his problem, we see it in Isaiah chapter 14. He's like Herod himself. He falls, he fails because he wants what belongs to God alone. In Isaiah 14, we find out how Lucifer falls, how, what the reason God cuts him down. For thou hast said in thine heart, Isaiah 14 verse 13, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Uh, the stars of God, a reference to the family, the celestial host of God. I will sit also, like God sits, upon the mounts of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And God says, no, you'll be destroyed, in verse 15. Thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. But here's the problem, it wasn't just Satan that got corrupted, many in the celestial family followed Satan in leaving God's family. And you see the magnitude illustrated for you, right, of this loss in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, in verses one through five, you see Israel represented as the woman who gives birth to the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Satan is seeking to destroy Jesus incarnate as man, right? And um, here's, the, here's the, the bit I want you to see. Look at Revelation 12 and verse four. And his, Lucifer, the dragon, Satan's tail, drew the third part of the stars of heaven. One third of the celestial host follows him in rebellion. He drew a third part of the stars of heaven and it did cast them to the earth. Okay, so a third of an innumerable company. How many is that? One third of innumerable is still innumerable. That's, yeah, that's how that innumerable word works. Okay, so, so there it is, right? In rebellion against God and absolutely wanting to destroy the, the coming and the function of the Lord Jesus Christ in his first advent. Uh, he was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, why is Satan saying, I will be like the Most High? I will rule like God rules over his family. I will have a throne, I will, I will receive the worship that belongs to God alone. Well, one of the things that you learn as you study your Bible is that Satan is a counterfeiter. Uh, everything that God is, that's what he wants to be. Everything that God does, he counterfeits it. So Satan wants to be the father. That's in his heart, he wants to be God. And Jesus reveals it when he's dealing with the religious rulers who are trying and seeking to murder him in his first coming. He tells them, ye are of your father, the devil. We find out in our Bibles that Satan, in 2 Corinthians 4, he's declared to be the, the God of this world, this fallen world, this fallen world system. It has a, a fallen God and, and there's a fallen, he is a fallen father. You're of your father, you're of your father the devil and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. He's just giving birth to lies and liars. Murder and murderers. Satan is a counterfeiter. He's a counterfeiter. 
So his rebellion causes a big war. And that's what results in the, the state of original creation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That was inhabited by God's celestial family. After the rebellion, we find the state of the earth in verse two, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness is upon. Darkness is covering the face of the deep. And so what you have in Genesis chapter one is a record of God's restoration of original creation as much as it is a creation week. And the pinnacle of that creation week is God making a terrestrial sun, a replacement sun from dirt. So a celestial sun rebels against him and, and then the next thing that God does in expanding his family is he makes a baby out of dirt. I mean a full grown baby. Genesis 2, 7 says, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. This is why in Luke 3, at the end of the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, Adam is called the son of God. Adam is now the son of God. Where Lucifer was a celestial son of God, Adam now is a terrestrial, he's an earthly son of God. And then God, because he puts his family in in charge of his affairs, he puts Adam in charge, right? Adam, his terrestrial son, he puts him in charge in the very same place that Lucifer ruled from whenever he was over God's affairs. Ezekiel 28 tells us that Satan was in the Garden of Eden. He was in Eden, the Garden of God, uh, when he was creation's first chief steward, first worship leader first manager of God's affairs. So think about it. Here is Satan, fired from his position over his rebellion. Remember Isaiah 14? Uh, You're saying you're gonna be what only belongs to God and yet you'll be brought down to hell. Satan is fired and then God hires dirt to replace him. Um, In other words, just kinda, you know, sometimes a father's rebuke can be pretty severe, right? Even dirt can do a better job than you, Lucifer. There it is. So now it's all out war against man. This is why when God put man in the Garden of Eden, he warned him. Uh, Adam has a job from the very first day of his life. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. To keep it means to set a watch. It means to guard against. Why does Adam have guard duty? Well, there's a snake in the garden. And we see him in Genesis chapter three. He sets this trap for Adam through his wife Eve, this son of God, this terrestrial son of God, the serpent deceives his wife. You know this story in Genesis chapter three. He appeals to her, uh, her, her logic, her reason. Uh, God's holding out on you. That's why you can't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God knows that you'll be as God's knowing good and evil. God's being stingy. When the whole planet is on the menu, okay? Every tree is there for their food. There's just one tree that God's saying don't eat it, why? Because he's not willing that they would perish. So he tricks, he deceives, he beguiles Eve and she eats and Adam sees her rebellion. Second Timothy two says he wasn't deceived and he willingly entered into his wife's sin condition. He took and he ate also. And now man is hiding from God in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. The voice of the Lord is there and man, Adam is hiding. This son of God is now cut off by his sin from his relationship with his heavenly father. He's hiding in the nakedness of his sin. And what's the result? Well, we're his descendants. Today, 
There are really only two sons of God. There are really only two sons that we need to be concerned about. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says that it's by Adam that death comes into the world. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. In Adam all die, why? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wrong that you've done, you inherited that as a sin nature, but you also are guilty because you did it yourself on purpose. You joined Adam in his rebellion. We've all sinned and come short of God's glory. We all fail to meet God's righteous standard. We all rebel against our creator. But God's rich in mercy. And so he set in motion a way for dirt to be redeemed back into his family. You keep going in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45. The first Adam was made a living soul. Uh, That's how you and I on this earth as terrestrial beings, right? This is how we live and move and have our being in the flesh. But the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the last Adam was made a quickening, a life-giving spirit. So think about it. How did God do that? How did, how, did, how did God make a way for dirt to be born again, to receive life again in the person of God? What does he do? Well, he makes a way for dirt to, re, to be redeemed back into his family because when Christ comes, he comes and he enters into Adam's race. How did he do it? Well, the whole, the whole issue of rebellion started with Satan being lifted up in pride. Remember that, Isaiah 14? He wants what belongs to God alone. So when Christ comes, how does he enter into Adam's race? He comes in humility. He comes into a lowly family, a simple family, in difficult times. He was born of a virgin, and he spent his first night on earth sleeping in an animal feed trough. I mean, it just doesn't get any lower than that. Uh, Where did the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords lay his perfect head uh, in a feed trough. Philippians chapter two tells us about Christ's mind when he came. Uh, He comes, he's born of a virgin. Uh, As God, in verse six, he knows he's equal with God, but watch this now. But he, verse seven, Christ, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So what Satan wanted for himself, great glory, to rule in the place of God as God, to be the father over creation, what he did in his pride, Christ undid it all in great humility. In Genesis chapter three and verse 15, after Adam and Eve rebelled and fell in the garden. Um, you know, God calls them out of hiding and uh, he covers their, their, the nakedness of their sin with the sacrifice of an innocent animal, makes, makes clothing of their skins. And he gives this prophecy in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between thee, you serpent, Satan, Lucifer, I'll put you're, you're gonna be at war. There's gonna be enmity between you and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Her seed, right? It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Uh, you'll give him a tough time, but he will kill you. He will destroy you. See, at Calvary, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, Satan bruised his heel. 
But Satan's trap for Adam was completely undone at Calvary through Christ being willing to humble himself as a servant to the Father. That's what's amazing to me, because now there's a way of escape that God would be willing to enter into. Just like Adam before, he willingly entered into our sinful condition. He committed no sin, and he did not do it in rebellion to the Father, he did it in humility and submission to the Father. And the wrong and the sin that we commit, he took it upon himself. Colossians 2 says he nailed it to his tree. And whenever Jesus died that day, 2,000 years ago, our sin died that day. You say, well, man, I messed up this morning just getting ready, coming to church. There was some, there was some, there was some yelling <laughs> to get in the car <laughs> or whatever. Uh, man, Christ died for your attitude 2,000 years ago. He died for the pride. He died for the rebellion, the covetousness, the lies. He took it all. Now there's a way of escape, and because God is rich in mercy, he wants all to come to repentance of sin into Christ's salvation. Ephesians chapter two describes every person. Um, here it's specifically talking to Christians, but, but, but he covers both. You, church, believer, hath God quickened. He's made you alive. You were dead in trespasses and sin. You used to walk like lost people walk in this world and you live your life in sin and rebellion according to the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in children of disobedience. That's how you used to live and we all had our lifestyle. Our, our life was, was stuck in lost world, living lost, it's lost ways, right? But now watch this, we were by nature the children of wrath even as others, but now watch this, Ephesians 2, 4, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. He's made us alive. We used to be dead in sin, but he's made us alive again together with Christ. By grace are you saved. See, the story of Christmas is one of humility. The story of Christmas, man, it's Christ showing Satan, right? Showing that Satan's desire for self-worship, Jesus overturned it all through his humility. Where Satan killed to get what he wanted, right? To get God's family for his own. Christ was willing to die for Adam's race. Where Satan wanted to be lifted up in pride. Christ humbled himself and took our death. So now what happens, what do we see? Now we have a way of escape. A way of escape from this, the course of this world, the sins of the flesh, um, our, our nature as children of wrath. There's a way of escape, so how does it work? Well, it's not through your pride. It's not through you doing good works or being smart enough or sharp enough or good looking enough or just awesome enough that somehow God has to just say, you know what, the good in you outweighs the bad in you. I had to make space for you in heaven. It doesn't work that way. You don't come to God through your pride, your value or your works. It comes in humility. When I was 12 years old, I cried out to God, God, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. Forgive me, come into my heart and life and rescue me. Romans 10 verse nine says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not 
be ashamed. Do you know you can be saved today? You can be born again. You can be delivered from a life in sin and be translated into God's family. You can be made alive together in Christ. Ephesians 2, again, in verses 8 and 9, if you just keep going in that chapter, the, the Bible describes that our salvation is a testimony of God's grace, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Nobody gets saved by a Herod mindset. I'm the man, I'm the woman. <laughs> no, it comes in humility. We're saved by God's grace, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, this battle of sin that Satan started in his pride, Christ ends it in his humility. That's the celestial drama behind Christmas, and this is why the angels are freaking out in the shepherd's field. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're throwing a rave, man. I mean, they're, they're rejoicing at what God is doing. This is why those angels that did not follow Lucifer in rebellion rejoiced when Jesus was born. Luke chapter two, verse eight. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were so afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And verse 12 says, And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly, the sons of God, the celestial host, they can't take it anymore. They gotta worship. <laughs> Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. God made a way for terrestrial man, for dirt to be reconciled back to God from their sin as sons, as sons and daughters, as part of his family. So that's the question on the floor this morning is have you entered into Christ's victorious humility? Or are you yet stubbornly with Herod in your pride? I'd like us to bow our heads. I'd like us to close our eyes. I'd like us to examine ourselves before we close. Is there anyone here today that would say, Pastor, would you please pray for me because I need to surrender my life to Christ. I need God to save me from my sin. I need to be born again. Pastor, please, would you pray for me? Can I see your hands? Is there anyone like that in this service? Please pray for me. I don't know that I'm saved. I don't know that God is my father. My father. I don't know that I have a relationship with him as his child. Please pray for me. In a room this big, it's inevitable that there are some that don't know the Lord. Yes, sir. Anyone else? Pastor, please pray for me. I don't know that I'm saved and I need to be. I need to be, I need to be redeemed. I need to, I need to be born again. I need to be God's child. Is there anyone else? Please pray for me. Yeah, okay, I see you. How many would say, Pastor, would you pray with me? <laughs> I've got a friend, I've got a family member, I've got a neighbor, I've got someone I work with, I've got someone that I'm burdened for. They don't know Christ and, and they need to see Christ's humility. Please, would you pray? Can I see your hands? 
Keep your hands up. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and Lord, we're asking that you'd hear our cry. Lord, thank you that you loved us so much that you were willing to enter into Adam's fallen race and to take upon yourselves our sin, our crime, our wickedness. Though you committed none of it, you were reckoned all of it so that God's wrath, the Father's wrath, would be satisfied over our rebellion. And so God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for his humility. Thank you that that Satan's pride, his agenda, uh, born in pride, was undone at Calvary. And so God, we've got people that we're burdened for and we're asking that you'd be with us in this Christmas season, right? Help us to invite them to one of these services. Help us to tell the good news of Christmas. Would you open a door for the gospel for us and for the couple that raised their hand that don't know you as Father? Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray that today would be the day where they lift up their voice, where they would call on you and say, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, come into my heart and life and redeem me, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. And Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.